Ons once again takes center stage, 2.34%. Correction, 2.341%. Pretty amazing move. When I look compared to last week, the 10-year bond was at 2.12%, and the week before that, it was at 1.85%. So bonds are up almost half a percent, the 10-year bond, in two weeks. Isn't that interesting? Uh, So big moves over in the bond market. Other than that, the metals have calmed down. I mean, we have a what I would consider a bit of a lame interest rate hike by the Fed, 0.25%. I don't know if that's going to affect anything. I guess maybe boring is good in their world. But yeah, if they're trying to get ahead of the curve, if they're trying to hit inflation, I would have thought 0.5% would have said a little bit more about the seriousness of how they intend to do that. I'm sure they have many variables that they are looking at. You know, turning to the war, you know, I still see the Ukrainian government officials wanting to join NATO. I don't know if it was one of the deputy ministers. And then just yesterday, the Latvian president was saying that Ukraine should be fast-tracked into the EU. I mean, For me, it's a little bit incomprehensible because in my world, and I'm not saying it's right, sure, I'm not saying it's right, but in my world, Vlad will nuke Ukraine before letting it be a part of the EU. So I don't know what the end game is here with these guys. I don't know what they're thinking. You know, I I really don't because I, to me, it's just like, the country's half destroyed and we still want to join the EU and NATO. And I wish it was just a negotiation point, but I don't think it is. So like it just, you, you, you know, and again, well, I was just going to say like, I'm just some guy, but we had George McLeod on who studies these things. And of course he's one of many opinions out there, but he is more of an expert and He is someone that has a clue, you know, like I'm not claiming to have a clue here, but I think we can say that George McLeod has a clue. Yes, this narrative. Now, conversely, it's pretty interesting. I mean, Peter Zion is doing the rounds on YouTube there and in the media in certain circles, and he's another geopolitical guy. All these geopolitical guys are center stage right now. He has quite an interesting view. He's another one of these guys that was saying this is going to happen. He was saying that this war was going to happen because Russia, Russia's demographics are pretty bad. He said only second to China and that really Russia was running out of time in order to make this move. And he thinks they're going to keep going if they can. If they're not stopped in Ukraine, they will keep going, according to him. So it is interesting because, you know, from Russia's point of view, whatever they end up taking, I suppose, how is their army going to guard it? Then they just have the nuclear deterrent after that. So while they have the troops, you make as big a push as you can, and then you rely on your nukes from there to secure the frontiers, so to speak. So who knows? You know, and lest we forget... This nickel story, you know, LME, (laughs) London Metals Exchange, is suffering a pretty big credibility crisis. Now they're doing these limit circuit breakers, which 
to me is like pretty lame. Like, I mean, again, this just makes crypto that much more interesting. Okay. And all you crypto haters out there, let me tell you, there because it's decentralized, there are no circuit breakers. And I tell you, there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for getting the real price on things. However, they may be manipulated by whales. At least you're getting like the market price instead of like some manager at the LME saying, sorry, guys, you've had too much fun today. Time to go home. So anyways, we have a big report by Bloomberg on this via mining.com. So a very historic time here that we are looking at. And it's, you know, our bread and butter here, these metals and these mining companies are surprisingly close to the heart of the matter here. Uh, We were saying, Jeff Curry, the revenge of the old economy. And, you know, we see it again with our feature content here with the World Bank's senior mining specialist, Martin Lokank. So we're going to take a look at what he says. I mean, it's kind of a story you've heard before, but there are a lot of shades. I mean, as kind of a World Bank economics senior mining specialist guy, he does kind of add color to the story. You know, he does say demand is going to increase across the board. The future is more mineral intensive than the past. And that really stood out to me. This idea that in the world of fossil fuels that we live in right now, minerals are not as important as they will be, or the world is not as, quote, mineral intensive as they will be in a more greener energy world. So we've kind of heard different variations of this, but this was kind of a to me, just like a articulation that added some color to this. And again, it's the World Bank. And so you kind of learn their view as we're always putting together this mosaic of what the mining world actually is. And finally, we have the CP rail strike here in Canada. And that timing, I don't know. To me, it feels very controversial. Like, As people are talking about major shortages, the world even talking about potential food issues, is it really the time to go on strike? Like maybe the union bosses think we couldn't have a better time, but, you know, me not knowing too much, and we're going to take a deeper look at this story, but is there a point where this becomes, you know, is there kind of a wrong time to go on strike? Let's just put it that way. And I suspect there might be. But we're going to take, we're going to listen to both sides as we always do. And finally, we have an event coming up in a couple of days here on Thursday, March 24th, the Mining Legends Speaker Series. And it features Ross Beatty, Chair of Equinox Gold, and Maggie Lehman, VP of Exploration at Cisco Development. They are sold out, actually, but you could have gotten a ticket for a gourmet three course lunch, networking opportunities with Mining Legends. I believe this is in Vancouver, BC. So something to keep your eye on. The Northern Miners Mining Legends Speaker Series. It's a new series. And, you know, that lunch, the three-course lunch, gourmet three-course lunch, that sounds like it's worth the price of admission alone. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news.
And turning to the website, we have our LME nickel story. Nickel squeeze threatens London's place at heart of metals trade. Bloomberg News via mining.com. And they have an extended article here. So first they go into a bit of history. The first short squeeze to plunge the London Metal Exchange into an existential crisis came over a century ago. In 1887, French industrialist Pierre Secretin set out to corner the copper market, sending prices more than doubling before he lost his grip and they collapsed. In the years since the exchange has survived world wars, scandals, and defaults to cement its place as a City of London institution, the home of global benchmark prices for the world's key industrial metals. That status is now under threat. The reason is another short squeeze, this time in nickel, that is wreaking havoc through the metals world. Investors are furious with the LME for allowing prices to soar 250% in less than two days, then retroactively canceling $3.9 billion in trades. When it tried to reopen the market, the exchange's electronic trading system malfunctioned repeatedly. The LME's outsized role in how industrial metals are bought and sold means that angry traders and investors have few alternatives, but the fallout from the nickel squeeze will cast a long shadow, embroiling the exchange in investigations and lawsuits for years and raising questions about its structure, ownership, and oversight. And we have a quote from Mark Thompson, a mining executive and former metals trader at Trefigura Group, who has emerged as one of the exchange's most outspoken critics, quote, Suddenly the LME just looks incompetent. They need root and branch reform. In an interview, LME Chief Executive Officer Matthew Chamberlain says the past two weeks have been, quote, an incredibly trying time, end quote, for the market, and he is focused on ensuring Quote, that an event of this nature never happens again. Which part, the short squeeze or the intervention? And, you know, when politicians and leaders come out and say, we want this to never happen again, like, to me it seems like they're talking to kids. They're treating people like children. We're going to make sure this never happens again. How do you know that this can never happen again? Maybe things get, Maybe we have even major nickel shortages in the next two years, maybe they should go up 400% in a day. Chamberlain's immediate priority is to get the nickel market functioning again. The LME's software glitch was due to be patched over the weekend, and the exchange is widening its trading ban from Monday to allow prices to fall up to 15%, which would bring it closer to where traders believe the market might find willing buyers. Yeah, so you can see why this, you know, Mark Thompson from Trifigura is saying they just look incompetent. Like, they do. The LME, which was founded in 1877 and is now owned by Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, performs multiple roles. For the metals industry, it's an essential utility, generating the prices that are embedded in almost every contract. For investors, banks, and brokers, it's a place to make money. On March 8th, as nickel prices shot to more than $100,000 a ton, the LME decided to cancel hours of trades and rewind prices to 48000 and $78. Effectively, it was a multi-billion dollar bailout of Chinese nickel tycoon Zhang Guangda, who held a massive bet that prices would fall. So, you know, you get a Hong Kong-owned exchange bailing out a Chinese nickel tycoon. I mean, not a good look. You know, it just raises questions. But the exchange was also throwing a lifeline to other smaller nickel traders and the specialist metal brokers who service them, who were in trouble when prices spiked. Now, back to the crypto markets, like, 
nobody saves the small Bitcoin traders who get liquidated regularly and get ruined. You know, these leverage traders, nobody bails them out, but we're going to bail out the small nickel traders. You know, and then it continues. If the events of March 8th were high drama, last week the LME descended into farce. Trading in nickel had been due to resume at 8 a.m. on Wednesday, but was delayed for several hours by a software glitch. More trades were cancelled. Similar embarrassing problems recurred over the next two days. Chamberlain blames, quote, a bug in the underlying third-party software, end quote, that the exchange missed as it rushed to put in the new price limits in place. Quote, if we had waited for the bug to be fixed, then we would have had to delay the reopening. The debacle has thrown owner HK... EX's plans for the LME into disarray. For much of the past 10 years, the LME has pinned its hopes for growth on attracting U.S. hedge funds and other financial investors. A portfolio manager at one large macro hedge fund says he has already stopped trading any LME contract for his relative value book that bets on price differences between commodities, equities, and currencies. Alex Gurko, founder of XTX Markets, a large quantitative trading firm, has dubbed the LME the, quote, Soviet metal exchange. So... Pretty interesting stuff. Turmoil continues at LME as they reestablish their credibility. Turning to our next story, CP Rail shutdown, quote, could not come at a worse time for miners, according to the Mining Association of Canada. And this is by Naimul Karim. The shutdown of the Canadian Pacific Railway's operations due to a wage and pension-related dispute with its union will negatively impact the country's mining industry, one of the largest railway customers, miners and analysts say. The Mining Association of Canada, which includes about 50 of the nation's leading mining companies, has expressed, quote, serious concern regarding the damaging effects, end quote, of the dispute on March 20th, a day after railway operations were shut down. Quote, as the single largest industrial customer group of Canada's railways, the mining industry has seen firsthand how detrimental, unpredictable work stoppages are to Canada's reputation as a reliable trading partner, Pierre Graton, Max CEO, said in a press release. Quote, with global supply chain fluidity having been heavily strained in recent months due to sharp swings in consumer demand during the pandemic and disruptions to global shipping, this strike could not come at a worse time. BMO analyst Jackie Prezbilowski believes that the shutdown could lower tech resources sales, which ships much of its coal to the West Shore and Neptune port terminals by Canadian Pacific Railway. And tech's public relations manager Chris Stanell said, quote, we are monitoring the situation closely and will take further steps as necessary. Any stoppage of rail service is negative for the economy as a whole, including our business. As such, we look forward to a prompt resolution. Now, let's hear from the Teamsters here. The Canadian Pacific Railway and the Teamsters Canada Rail Conference Union, which represents about 16,000 workers in the rail industry, have blamed each other for the shutdown, which began on March 19th. Dave Fulton, a spokesperson for the TCRC, or the Teamsters, said that Canadian Pacific, quote, must be taken to task for this situation. They set the deadline for a lockout when we were willing to pursue negotiations, even more so than they moved the goalpost when it came to discuss the terms of final and binding arbitration, said Fulton in a press release. So is it a lockout or a strike? Because that does change the situation dramatically. Canadian Pacific CEO Keith Creel, however, said the company was, quote, engaged in ongoing negotiations, end quote, when the TCRC decided to, quote, withdraw its services and lead to a shutdown. Well, that sounds like a strike. The TCRC is well aware of the damage this reckless action will cause to the Canadian supply chain, he said in a press release. 
In 2019, shipments of coal, iron ore, potash, and other minerals and metals represented more than half of Canadian rail's freight volume, according to MAC, Mine Association of Canada. So some dramatic situations relating to supply chains on the home front. Also in Canada, Ontario aims to boost EV industry as it announces its first critical mineral strategy, also by Naimul Karim. As part of its five-year critical mineral strategy announced today, Ontario will invest $24 million over three years in its junior exploration program, half of which will be invested for a critical mineral stream and $5 million for a critical mineral innovation fund. The strategy aims to better connect mines in the north to the manufacturing sector in the south, specifically to Ontario-based electric vehicle and battery manufacturers. It will also look to tap into the EV batteries, telecommunications, and national defense markets and position the province as a, quote, global leader in supplying the critical minerals. And we have a quote from Doug Ford, Ontario Premier. The critical mineral strategy is our government's blueprint to connect industries, resources, and workers as we build up homegrown supply chains. Doing so has never been more important as we secure game-changing investments in our auto sector to build the electric vehicles and batteries of the future. So Ontario is lining up to support the battery metals industry. And finally, just a few headlines here. Barrick looks to new territories and hunt for quality assets. Again, by Naimul Karim. And so Mark Bristow is looking for fresh opportunities to expand the company's presence in the globe. The new frontiers include the Nubia and Arabian Shields in North Africa, the Middle East, Egypt, and Pakistan. So this fits beautifully with what Martin Lokank of the World Bank says in our feature content here. Quick quote by Bristow, we are increasing our global footprint as the hunt for high-quality assets extends into new perspective areas. So... Interesting. Also, Newmont has gotten the green light for the coffee project in Yukon. And so, yes, the Yukon Environmental Socioeconomic Assessment Board has green lighted the project. And we have a quote from Mark Rogers, Regional Senior VP of Newmont, North America, who said, quote, the decision to approve the coffee gold project provides much needed certainty about the future of the project and the development of this strategic asset. Yeah, so coffee's been around for a while. We've been covering it for years here at the Northern Miner. And finally, a Northern Miner staff story. Deadline approaches for Canadian Mining Hall of Fame 2023 nominations. And so here are the dates. May 1st, 2022 is the deadline to contact a member or associate member organization about nominating a candidate for induction. May 31st is the deadline for nomination materials to be delivered to a member or associate member organization for review. And if you want to get the nomination form, just go to miningholofame.ca slash nominate. We have a little bit more information on the website. Just look for the story deadline approaches for Canadian Mining Hall of Fame 2023 nominations. Those are your new stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on March 22nd, gold is trading at $1,924.27 per ounce. That is $6 lower 
than last week. Silver, however, is higher at $25.08 per ounce. That is 28 cents higher. Interesting. Platinum is trading at $1,029.41 per ounce. That is $2 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,521.64 per ounce. That is $106 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.05 higher at $4.65 per pound. Aluminum is $0.04 lower at $1.53 per pound. And lead is $0.05 lower at $1.02 per pound. Nickel is at $16.84 per pound. So that is $5.03 lower than last week, but $3.52 higher than the week before that. So nickel, you know, which everybody's talking about now, it's kind of got an equilibrium between last week's super high and two weeks ago's very high. Okay, so it's between 13 and 21 at $16.84. And tin is at $19.26 per pound. That is 71 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is a penny lower at $37.03 per pound. And zinc is a penny higher at $1.75 per pound. What do we see? I think we can see a pause, a consolidation at higher prices. Across the board, even gold, even though it's back down below $2,000, it's still at $1,924. Maybe the big takeaway is how silver is up and gold is down. Even though these are smaller moves, it's not that often that we see that. So that is just maybe the real takeaway. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Martin Lokank. And he is a mining specialist in the World Bank's Energy and Extractives Global Practice. And he was giving a presentation at the Global Mining Symposium just a few weeks ago. And it says here he currently supports and leads mining sector development activities across Africa. In addition to managing a number of research and global knowledge projects, trained as a mining engineer and economist, he has global experience in mine development and mining strategy, mineral and energy economics, corporate finance, government relations, and economic development. So a pretty interesting presentation. With that, I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. speak for a bit around this topic of critical minerals in lands of opportunity. The first half of the presentation is really going to be on, I think, something that we've been paying a lot of attention to, which is this need for these energy transition minerals if we're going to achieve the uh, sort of objectives around tackling climate change. The second half is really going to focus on quite a broad region um, as defined by the Future Minerals Forum, which includes all of Africa, the Middle East, Central and Southern Asia with a bit maybe perhaps more focused then on, on the kingdom of Saudi Arabia itself. But before I jump into it, let me just tell you a little bit about the World Bank. I'm not sure if everybody understands the, the work that we do. Essentially, we have two prongs to our mission. The first is to end extreme poverty, and the second is to promote shared prosperity. So we're one of the largest donors working in this development space globally. And, and to achieve these this mission, we have five institutions. Together, they make up the World Bank Group. 
but the World Bank, as it's commonly known, is actually the first two there at the bottom, the IBRD and IDA. Um, those principally serve developing country governments, their agencies, SOEs in some cases. The next two, I would say, have a, a bit more of a focus on, on the private sector. And I think that they're really critical to minimizing investment risk and really catalyzing that private sector investment in these countries, which is so important for development. The IFC is really a, almost like a private equity or investment bank, probably a better definition, like version of the World Bank. So they'll, they'll take small uh, equity positions or debt positions in companies looking to invest in developing countries. Whereas MIGA is really a guarantee agency. And the two of them are, are quite unique in the sense because a lot of companies, they don't necessarily need the financing from the World Bank, but they're looking to minimize risk. And what happens is that by participating with these two agencies or institutions, you kind of leverage the whole World Bank group and dialogue with that government. And then should things turn south, really you have sort of recourse that's not in the local courts because the World Bank group and its agencies are protected by certain treaties. And then that gives you access to the last one, which is ICSID, International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. Let me just move on then into the subject matter and start saying by a little bit of background. I think many people know this already, but the future is more mineral intensive than the past. These renewable energy technologies, which we need to adopt to, to tackle climate change are far more mineral intensive than fossil fuel technologies. And this is some of the work that the bank has done and it's uh, one of its flagship reports released in 2020, estimating that more than 3 billion tons of minerals and metals will be needed by 2050 to achieve a less than, than two degree uh, scenario, equivalent to 300,000 Eiffel Towers. Demand is gonna increase across the board generally. Here you can see some of the largest increases that are based on current production levels forecasted for 2050. The first group near the top, graphite, lithium, cobalt, indium, vanadium, massive percent increases in these specialized minerals, starting from a small base though, right? So a volume increase is perhaps not the same as you're seeing here in percentage increases. But where we'll see a lot of volume is in some of the, the base metals, which are necessary for the transition. Nickel, aluminum, copper, small percentage increases, but really significant in terms of amounts. And if I can just put a statistic out there, I had heard from Robert Friedland of Ivanhoe Group, confirmed it myself doing some independent research, but essentially since we've started mining copper, we mined in like the last 10,000 years, we've mined about 700 million tons of copper in total. Now, in the next 25 years, if we just want to maintain like 3% GDP growth, we have to mine that same amount. That's not even considering the energy transition. If you add that on top, depending on the scenarios, we have to mine 1.5 times to two times the amount of copper that we've mined in the last 10,000 years. So there's a huge opportunity here, but also um, a huge challenge, I think, to be able to do this responsibly. I think we all know that there's very long lead times associated with bringing new deposits online. And unfortunately, what that means is that we're seeing rapidly rising prices for a number of energy minerals. Here are some 
price charts for lithium, which increased just four times in 2021. Copper is at a high as well. Nickel is at a 10-year high at the moment. And we're seeing similar trends for rare earths, cobalt. Obviously, this is going to boost, boost mining and production and, and, and profitability. And I think we're seeing that with some of the annual results that are coming out. But also, what it does, I mean, there's, a, there's an expression, right, that the cure for high prices is high prices. And what it's going to do, though, is make some of the transition perhaps less affordable as well, because these costs get, get passed on into the renewable energy technologies. We look at, at supply structure. I think what we find here is that it's quite concentrated at various parts of the value chain. The mining sites essentially are determined by geological availability, and then also importantly, where investment flows. But if you look at the charts here on the right, these are showing just the top three producers of where energy metals are produced and where energy metals are processed, only just the top three, quite quickly, more than 50% of the world, copper, nickel, cobalt, rare earths, and lithium are concentrated at some point in the value chain in just three countries. Processing though, I think it's worth making the distinction that it's, uh, it's heavily concentrated in China. And as a result, I think what we're seeing emerging is strategies by various governments or groups of governments to establish more resilient supply chains. That's, I think, a term that's, that's being used. Looking to onshore a little bit more, looking to find like-minded countries where supply can be less unstable, for example, and really try and diversify this. I think, I think if you look at this, this energy transition and the concentration of supply, it's much more concentrated than the fossil fuel economy where coal, oil, et cetera, is quite widespread around the world. I think it's only a matter of time though until the supply sources will become diversified, but at the, at the moment it's, it's quite concentrated. So in terms of developing new and resilient supply chains, what can be done? I think first we need to understand demand growth for critical minerals better. We're in this environment where the future of technology is quite pluralistic. There's a lot of substitution happening as a result of a lot of innovation. And an example would be the announcement, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday of this week of Tesla switching bat uh, battery technologies from sort of nickel dependent to iron ore dependent. I mean, they'll, they'll take a hit on the efficiency, but the cost will come down significantly. Other actions really is to, to grow and accelerate supply. That's either looking for new supply from the World Bank's perspective, we fund a lot of geodata campaigns in developing countries, inventorying tailing, uh, tailings resources and other source, uh, which speaks a bit to the circular economy and could be some of the most perhaps, you know, shovel-ready resources. Regulatory efficiency, I think, is a big one. I'm seeing that already in North America where governments are looking at what can they do to allow mines to come online as fast as possible. But really importantly, I think nobody wants to compromise the responsible development of these new mining projects. One that perhaps doesn't get enough attention, but I've seen used is, is providing price stability for these volatile markets. As I mentioned before, that the substitution can be quite sudden in choices between companies and their technologies. And so prices can, can be quite volatile. And so, some kind of stability in the price to allow the financing to flow can be important. But I think one of the most important things as well is the human capital around the, the value chain. 
when you think about that amount of copper that needs to be mined in the next 25 years, two and a half times what we've mined in the past, where are the people going to come from to build and operate these mines in a responsible way? And it's not just the, the STEM, I, I highlighted that, it's also the, you know, the social specialists, the environmental specialists, um, et cetera, that I think are really important in making sure that it's, uh, these mines come on, online in a sustainable, responsible manner. So I think it's quite clear the world needs more minerals. But the question is, I think for all of us, where is it going to come from? How is it going to be green and clean? And what about communities and, and human rights? Now, I wanna to talk to you again about this region that I introduced at the beginning around Africa, the Middle East, Central and South Asia. It's a very rapidly growing region. Together with urbanization, this doesn't just create demand for energy transition minerals, but there's going to be demand for all kinds of minerals, including industrial minerals that are so important as part of the, the construction. It has really high potential for mineral production growth, and we'll talk a little bit about that. It's very largely unexplored. But however, it's facing some, some common challenges around, around talent, around exploration, infrastructure, and capital. This slide is showing you that the region is industrializing. You can look at the data. It's projected to catch up in terms of manufacturing capacity with the Western world. And partly this is to meet local demand linked to the uh, urbanization that, that I described, but partly it's to meet international demand. Now, in terms of possibilities, it's, it's a region again with tremendous possibilities. It's comprised of 79 countries, with over 3.5 billion representing 45% of the global population. It has 33% of the global land mass. It has over 9 trillion US of GDP. And importantly, it has a, a huge opportunity to accelerate development and be a supplier of minerals, refined products as well, and manufactured products to the global market. In terms of its geological potential, it's already known that this region holds some of the largest reserves and resources for key commodities. It's already the majority of known resources and reserves of platinum, phosphate, bauxite, manganese, cobalt, and diamonds, and remains also a key uh, and important producer of palladium, uranium, gold, copper, and nickel, and all of those fit into these key industrial end users, which are all projected to be growing in the future. Now, one other thing though, when you look at sort of where investment and exploration is going, much of the region remains uh, largely unexplored or underexplored. The geological mapping is often dated in some countries. So it's been done using older technologies, it can be low resolution, so you won't get those you know, high density scale maps or it's simply unavailable because the, the government lacks the systems to put the data available online and you're just dealing with paper-based maps in a geological survey department. But I think important to note is that although this region contains about a third of the global land mass, it attracts less than 10% of global, global exploration. You'll see there on the right, some of the major destinations of exploration investment, that's per square kilometer. Chile, Australia, Canada, USA. If you look in terms of total absolute dollars, 
Canada was number one in 2021. Australia followed. USA was number three. Chile came number fifth. But South Africa, for example, attracted only 0.76% of total exploration dollars. The DRC, which is the region that attracted the most exploration dollars in Africa, got 1.2%. Saudi Arabia got uh, 0.75%. Funds that flow in the region, it's either from a few national champions or from foreign multinationals. But the region needs more investment by international mining companies and by local companies. I think in some places there can be considerable wealth, particularly in the Middle East, and it'll be really important, I think, for them to mobilize that domestic local investment into their sector. I mean, Canada has been extremely successful at doing that. I mentioned to you that they were the number one in terms of exploration dollars in 2021. 68% of that came from the flow through share scheme, meaning that 68% of that investment came from Canadians investing in their own mining sector. If you just took that 68, it actually ranks ahead of uh, all the expenditure that went into the United States. So this can play a really big, important role at attracting mineral investment. But in terms of, you know, when we look at things across the world, what are the main determinants of, of where investments flow? Generally, it's governments. It's governments and governance is really the single largest determinant. Geological potential is really important. Either you have the geology or you don't. But again, a government has to make a decision to understand it's a geology, and then it has to make another decision to share that with the world to allow the private investment to flow. Potential profitability of operations is a big factor, and, and the fiscal regimes are a key part of that. Security of tenure is really important. Consistency or stability of policy, whether it be the mining law or code, the fiscal regime, again, are really important. I think sometimes it's worse to have a, a bad fiscal regime than one that's changing all the time. Investors want to know, you know, with some level of predictability, what they're going to get. And the last one is the availability of infrastructure. Now, this uh, differs, obviously, across that broad region, Saudi Arabia being quite good for infrastructure, but there's parts of Central Africa where the infrastructure is really lacking. But I think this issue of governance is not just important to catalyzing the, the mineral investment to get this pipeline going, but it, it's really important to the sustainable development of the sector. It's really important in ensuring that governments and communities are getting a fair share, that the environment isn't put in, at risk. And this can also link into political stability. If you have a well-managed mining sector, typically you're often also in a politically more stable region. In terms of some of these, you want to look at these mining sector enablers. Many of these are limited. We talked about investment and how most of the foreign investment or most of the global investment and exploration isn't going. There's, there's very few regional champions, and that's something that needs to be worked on, as well as the domestic investor. I think that the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as well as just the GCC, the collaboration of Gulf states, they have a lot of wealth. They understand this, but they need to mobilize it. And I believe that there's a desire to perhaps create a future mining finance hub there. Infrastructure, as I mentioned, is lacking. There's, there's much lower 
road and rail density. Um, that adds to costs, it adds to inefficiencies, right? It'll add to your carbon footprint, for example, as well. Financing is just lower levels of capital. Again, you can't generalize with such a broad region, but for much of Africa, certainly that's true of parts of Africa. And talent, again, is going to be a big constraint, I think, on to, you know, on, on being able to develop the sector. So we need to think about that. There's a, there's a lot of brain drain, which is working against investment, the local investment in human capital. I think we need to think through how we can support those countries. Coming back a bit to the, to the question of governance, and what I wanted to really say here is that I'm sure a lot of the listeners or participants recognize this, but the world is changing, not just in terms of the energy transition, but the way that we're doing business, the importance of ESG is all changing very quickly. And with that comes massive economic, financial, commercial risks, but also tremendous opportunities. Communities are facing increased pressure, partly in result of climate change, is going to be important, like renewed focus on water and how that's shared. And water is a very important input into mining processes. But I think, you know, an important thing to think about, which affects governments, these mining post governments, but as well as mining companies, is that we're in this environment where if it's not an end user company like Tesla or, or I, Apple that that know that their consumers want a clean product and will therefore identify a supplier of choice and then everyone else becomes a supplier of last resort and you may not get access to markets, you may get a price discount as opposed to a premium. There is serious and emerging discussions around these border adjustment tariffs on carbon. And so if you're operating in an environment and you have a high carbon footprint and you're not already subject to some kind of carbon taxation, that product is going to get taxed in a consumer country. That poses risks for governments because it's essentially a transfer of mineral wealth to those consumer nations if they aren't capturing it themselves, so a carbon tax. But it will ultimately translate into a price discount as it comes back rippling through the value chain. So there's a real interest, I think, and an important government objective and business reason to ensure that the entire mineral value chain works toward reducing emissions but also you know, ensuring this responsible and resilient mineral supply chain. To help governments think through this, the World Bank has come up with sort of a framework to, to think about these issues. We call it the Climate Smart Mining Framework, which its definition is a sustainable extraction, processing, and recycling of minerals and metals to deliver social, economic, and environmental benefits throughout the value chain. We've broken it up into these four pillars, climate mitigation actions, climate resilience, circular economy, and creating market opportunities. And sort of running all across that is the governance and adequacy of the regulatory framework, but also gender and innovation. But on that, the governance and regulatory framework, we have another tool that we use to help countries. We've rolled this out in 18 countries so far. It's called the Mining Sector Diagnostic Tool. What you're seeing here is a dashboard for Peru that was just completed late last year. And what we try and do is systematically think across the extractive industry value chain and assess how well does a country do against what would be considered international good practice. We cut it up between two lenses. The first is, you'll see the row uh, de jure performance, which means what's the quality of 
your written laws, policy, your regulation. And so we look at that again across this, what we call the extractive industries value chain. And then we look at de facto performance. So given what you've said you want to achieve in your, in your rules and regulations, how are you doing against that? And it's not uncommon to see a little bit of a gap that people are doing stronger on paper than they are in practice. Peru shows that a little bit. But the reason I wanted to say this is that we're using these two frameworks. We're actually building out a module that'll incorporate this climate smart mining into this framework. We don't know exactly how it's gonna look yet at the end, but to really operationalize this, really make sure that we can engage with governments and remove barriers for companies that want to have a decarbonized operation, but also it's, uh, it's to manage some of the mitigation risks or the, the uh, adaptation risks around climate change, around mining communities, et cetera. And with that, that's the end of my presentation. I just wanted to thank you again for letting me share this with you. Martin Lokank, Senior Mining Specialist at the World Bank. So I hope you enjoyed that. We have many more exciting guests coming up in the weeks ahead. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Send it to your friends. Until next week, take care.